So once again, I find myself looking out at you all and wondering, how are you doing? What kind of spirit might you be bringing to your experience? We can you know, find we have a sort of habitual, or several different kinds of habitual attitudes that we easily bring to our experience. And we might find oneself sometimes, or at particular moments, going through with what's actually a kind of unhelpful or self-defeating attitude, and yet it's so habitual, it's almost kind of cosy in its familiarity. You know that funny English phrase, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Right? And uh, sometimes we know they're devils, but they're my devils. You know, there's something reassuringly familiar about running the, the, the particular tape. So it might be the self-pity tape. You know? So we find ourselves going through the retreat or meeting our experience in, in a kind of a spirit of self-pity. Mm, poor me. I didn't bring the right clothes for the retreat. I didn't know it was going to be damp. And I, other people bought slippers. And I didn't know to bring slippers. And, right. oh, we find ourselves meeting our experience within a spirit, in a kind of suspicious spirit, a spirit of comparison. I'm mean, very concerned with how I seem to be doing versus how other people seem to be doing. Even though we don't really know much about other, how other people are doing, it doesn't stop us from filling in the gaps, right, with a lot of assumptions. And then the comparison, my meditation with their meditation, how much they took on their lunch plate, and uh, me who's such a good yogi, how little I took, right? or some variation thereof. I can see the recognition dawning as I go. So, you know, the different spirits with which... You might just see for yourself right now what kind of... what habitual spirit might you bring That's one sees is kind of unhelpful, that's in some way actually mean-spirited. Mean-spirited to oneself often, or mean-spirited to others sometimes. And one knows mean-spirited doesn't feel good doesn't help. And yet, something about the familiarity of it, the inertia of it, that pulls us in. What else? I was thinking of a lot of different spirits upstairs just now. And, uh, maybe I don't need two examples. You can fill in the blanks yourself. Inflated spirit sometimes. You know, we have some particularly peaceful meditation and then suddenly the other side of spirit, oh, now I've really got it. Right, now I'm... And even then we know it's kind of not helpful. It's not really true and yet off we go down that road of self-inflation, self-importance. Anxious spirit sometimes catches some of us a lot. Just some sort of low-level sense of mm, things aren't quite right. Or even if they are quite right, that's a bit weird. They must be bound to go wrong soon. Low-level kind of agitation. 
anxiety, fearfulness. And these, what I'm calling spirits, these sort of attitudes, relationships to experience, of course they don't, they don't fall from the sky. Right? They're learned attitudes, conditioned attitudes, and very helpful to recognize, feel into, stay open to in such a way that we start to understand something maybe about the history of how those attitudes got formed in us. Start to learn something about the perceived need to hang on to those attitudes. Start to learn something about why the familiarity of those attitudes um, feels in some way comforting, even though we can see it as self-defeating. Start to see something about the, yeah, the, um, the inertia, the habit force of clinging to a familiar sense of self, even when it's a miserable sense of self. So, I have, I'd like to talk about a remedy to that, rather than some of these various different spirits. And really, that's, I'd like to speak about practicing with a generous spirit. And the, the tradition, the, the word for generosity in the tradition is dana, right? Beauty, and there's a lot to be said, a lot to be reflected on, a lot to be practiced with in the realm of dana, cultivating generosity, practicing generosity. And I think we do it uh, really a poor service in many ways when the only time we speak about dana is on the last morning of the retreat where we basically, we dress it up nicely, but basically we're saying, please give us some money. And that's, it's an important part of the retreat. And you will hear me say that on, on Sunday morning. Right? And yet, I've always been struck by the fact that when the Buddha talks about dana, he, he talks about it as uh, the practice of dana as the, the foundation for happiness. He says, generosity is the foundation for happiness. Very interesting. So, given the propensity we can have for anxiety or comparison or self-pity or whatever it might be, and given that even though they're defeating, we, 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 kind of, we tend easily down those kind of avenues, we might be well served to explore practicing with a generous spirit and, and whatever that might mean, right? bringing forth that particular heart quality. And we might often speak in practice of uh, the heart quality of metta, right? a kindly spirit, a warm spirit. Right? And they're very close, of course. But there's something, a little, there's a little extra or different dimension to generosity. Right? Rather than metta is that quality of a certain kind of warm, radiant uh, benevolence a well-wishing, whether it's just going to oneself or to others or wherever it's going, or far and wide. But generosity has a sense of giving to, of making an offering, making a gift. And the link that's made between that sense of offering, of giving, an act of kindness, 
and happiness, a happy heart. And of course, there's countless ways to practice generosity. We, um, we might encounter those ways in, in different ways. One of the ways that often I'm sort of confronted by the pull of the heart uh, towards generosity, as well as the pull of the heart towards the familiar kinds of inertia, is in meeting homeless people. So I'm, in the last few weeks I've been in London, Brussels, Paris, Amsterdam, New York and San Francisco in the last three weeks, I think. And so, and all of those big cities, and I'm really a country liver at heart. Right? I love big cities, but I'm also, I don't, I don't live kind of quite uh, rurally, though some of you have been to the Mulan now. So one of the things that always confronts me in being big cities is, why is the number of homeless people? And of course, the, the heart wants to respond, and it's complicated. Sometimes one doesn't know how to respond. Sometimes one wants to respond, but one is shy or fearful or whatever. But I always think, here's somebody in need of generosity. And here's a heart that wants to be generous. There must be a way to put those two things together. And sometimes, and it's interesting, I have a good friend who works a lot with homeless people and homeless charities. And underlines the importance often the two things that she says the homeless people most want and one is just kind of human contact right actually to be given the gift of a certain dignity of being recognized met and the other is clean socks right which you might, might not think about if one hasn't been in that kind of position but one can really imagine if one's living on the streets and uh, doesn't have access to laundry or to uh, um, sanitation very easily, a pair of clean socks must be nice. So that was very interesting for me to hear. Oh, there's something. Clean socks and also the, the kind of the sense of contact. And may or not always be possible for whatever reasons. But... Just these, it's a, just an example of these areas in our life where we get to uh, cultivate a generous heart. And then I started to pay more attention to clean socks. I noticed that sometimes in supermarkets you get bumper packs of clean socks. So if you'd like a practice, like a generosity practice, next time you see a bumper pack of clean socks, buy it. Stuff them in your bag and distribute them. In fact, if you want a really... Right, generosity is a foundation for happiness. If you want a really great day out in London, if you want a day out that you might finish feeling really happy and fulfilled and warm-hearted, rather than going to the theatre, rather than going to the gallery, rather than going to the restaurant, what might it be like I mean, please try it out, but right now, just imagine, what might it be like to spend the day giving out clean socks and making contact? Saying hello, asking how you're doing, 
asking, you know, where have you been for the last 24 hours? How have things been going? Are you warm enough? One may not have the solutions to all of those things, but the contact is an act of generosity. And of course, if one, when in giving, a, you know, just a small example, you're giving a pair of socks, there's a lot going on. There's the gift of the socks, which by itself is, can be a well-appreciated thing. There's the gift of that sense of human dignity, recognition. There's giving somebody the gift of them in that moment being met, seen, acknowledged, cared for. And that, and maybe we've noticed that sitting here on our own cushion, that's what we all really are longing for. It's just innate in the human condition. We want to be listened to, met, seen, acknowledged, cared for. And our habit, of course, is acquisitive. Our habit is in the, in the realm like we've been exploring and seeing, the realm of compulsions and views and self-concerns. We can walk around in the bubble of, in London, for example, in the bubble of our compulsions and all the adverts that feed our compulsions. We can walk around in the bubble of our views seeing and hearing people go past, seeing and hearing homeless people on the street and just giving rise to kind of views, fearful views, comparative views, self-pitying views, judgmental views. And we can go around in the bubble of our self-concern built up in that way. Or we can find ways to break out of those bubbles. Even I just I think that kind of just the thought experiment of that. What might it be like compared to the satisfaction one gets from the restaurant or the cinema, etc.? What might it be like the satisfaction just for oneself of distributing a lot of socks? One can imagine a certain kind of, you know, we know that kindness and generosity feel good. Well, you can imagine now the kind of, the, the warm endorphin buzz of kindness, generosity. And so the invitation really to see if you're interested in happiness, where and how can I be generous with my time and my care and, uh, and my listening, my money? whatever the, the different resources that we have, how can we cultivate generosity as an antidote to the more kind of um, unhelpful spirits that we carry through and as a foundation for happiness? That link, the link between dana and happiness is, is very strong in, in a lot of the Eastern cultures where, where Buddhism is kind of culturally implanted. It's, it's strong in Europe as well, but in a, in, it seems to me in a less personal way. We're good at uh, philanthropy and charitable works and foundations and kind of st- uh, creating organizations that then go and help other people. But often not so much in a personal way. I, you know, one might hesitate to knock on somebody's door 
round here, for example, and ask for a glass of water. But in many years of traveling in the Middle East and Asia, I'm not sure I've been anywhere where I would hesitate to go and knock on a door and ask for a glass of water. Sometimes I stop someone on the street just to ask directions. Do you know where the bank is? Do you have the time? Not so much anymore because our phones tell us everything now. Right? But it happens to me very often. I don't think I look too threatening. Excuse me. And the person sort of says yes while speeding up their walk in the other direction already. Wow. You know? bringing a suspicious spirit to our, to our uh, activities, to our experience. Fearful spirit. Well, once, when I was 18 or 19, I spent the whole of the month of Ramadan in Jordan. So if you don't know, Ramadan's the Muslim fasting month. And people fast from before sunrise until just after sunset. And fasting means nothing should touch the lips. No, not just food, but no liquids, no water, no cigarettes, etc. So, already without food and water, and then for smokers, cigarettes adds a certain tension. So people are, it's kind of intense feeling during the day, and it was May, I think. It shifts throughout the year, Ramadan, because it's lunar, right? So it was hot, 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 and not a glass of water to be found. But... As soon as sunset arrived, pretty much every single day that whole month, people would just spontaneously take uh, me into their houses and feed me. And very, very touching to be the recipient of that kind of generosity. And it's also a touching practice to actually to open the heart in that way to allow oneself to be the recipient of generosity. Some of us are quite good at giving and giving and giving to others, but we're terrible at receiving. Whether it's receiving a gift, or whether it's just receiving appreciation. You know, sometimes it's difficult you want to thank someone, and then you sort of brush it off. So that's also practice. If, if somebody's appreciative, let it in. It's actually a gift in itself to let someone share an appreciative sentiment or expression. And we start to sense the more we cultivate a generous spirit, we start to sense the less importance of the, whether one's on the receiving end or the giving end, we start to sense this, the exchange of human contact the exchange of human kindness, the exchange that something is being really offered, whether it's a kind word, or whether it's um, thanks for something, or whether it's a pair of socks, we start to uh, feel and delight below the object or word that's being exchanged in the exchange itself, the exchange of heart. Also, might start to just attune to that gen- sense of spirit, uh, that generous spirit, even when we're alone. A generous spirit, even that life kind of seems to be um, supporting us with. 
when I was first in India, despite the, the great, the incredible generosity that I received in many ways from my teacher and then from the various village people that supported my teacher who would bring milk or rice or tea or various offerings. We lived kind of semi-remotely in the lower Indian Himalayas and you know, a rather simple village and yet a lot of generosity. I mean, a lot of generosity that my teacher gave to the local village people. Often just giving his time, his care, his advice, his flowers. We would grow flowers in the garden of the ashram. And then on festival days, and the garden would look beautiful, especially October. After the monsoon, the garden was looking wonderful. And then on the morning of the festival days, particularly Diwali, all the children would come, pick all the flowers, and I would get... I, this one time it happened and I got very indignant. I said, Babaji, did you see what happened? They, they came and took all the flowers. He said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what we're growing them for. <laughs> so... That kind of flow, generosity, giving, you know, a kind of open-handed, open-hearted. And similarly, then, the generosity of people uh, providing him with, as I say, rice, milk, tea, etc. And by extension, providing me with that. But my practice was very full of self-concern. And I was very concerned, partly just for my sanity, actually, um, I was concerned for my mind, I was concerned for my life. I was just, yeah, very concerned. I was really loving Dharma practice, and I, it was quite intense, and lots of things were changing, but I totally didn't know how to integrate it. I didn't know how to speak to people, for example, for quite some time. I would get very fearful. Uh, like if I went into town and I saw... I was okay with the local village people. It was foreigners I had a trouble with. I, if I saw them coming from far away on the road, I would start to um, panic almost. Oh my God, what should I do? Just so, so much self-concern in the practice. Should I say hello? Should I not? Should I, like that? Should I say namaste? Should I, should I just keep my eyes down? A lot of self-concern kind of intense, paranoid kind of self-concern. And then they'd get closer and closer. And then, of course, they'd get almost level and I'd do one of those things. <laughs> and then they'd go by and then the self-concern again. What, did they think I was weird? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> A lot of self-concern. Not much room for a generous spirit. And yet something about sitting there and something about the space and the mountains and trees, birdsong, the smell of the cedar, and uh, I started to increasingly feel the life's support. And it's a little anthropomorphic, maybe, in the description, but in the experience, we might really start to feel like, oh, life... He's being incredibly generous to us. The ground is actively holding us up. Life is actively 
animating this consciousness. Just keeping all this together. This, which in our usual self-preoccupied, self-concerned spirit, we just take it all for granted. And yet we may actually feel, oh, life's how supportive, how kind, how generous. In the way that life is just kind of maintaining us, holding us, supporting us, living us. And in the quietitude of meditation and in the, in the kind of supportive environment that we have here, one might just find a kind of a making room for that kind of generosity. And then as I say, the, the, it, the more one feels generously supported, the more naturally one wants to participate in that generous support, the more one the heart points in that direction, the more one wants to express some kindness, the one wants to make that offering. As well as being increasingly able to receive the generosity of others or of life, and as well as increasingly kind of seeing and um, finding opportunities to express that kind of generosity to others, one also starts to feel just a sort of inner generosity, a capacity to just to meet oneself generously, to meet one's experience generously, kindly. It's easy to have for us to generate a kind of a hard luck story. I remember in a Tom Robbins novel, somebody having cancer and the other person expressing a kind of clumsy sort of sympathy for the one with cancer. And the one with cancer says, hey, we've all got our hard luck story. And it struck me rather a lot. I was probably 17 or so when I read it. And it still stands out now. We've all got our hard luck story. We can all make much of our hard luck story. And some of us have very good reason to have a hard luck story. We've been treated in harsh ways or oppressive ways or cruel ways or abusive ways or marginalizing ways, scapegoating ways. We see the harsh and unfair and um, unkind treatment of people, you know, and as our political situation gets more polarized, and as the kind of current sort of extremist elements in our political system make much of the kind of the the bad treatment, the abusive treatment, the um, demonizing treatment of groups based on nationality or religion or origin or the kind of political favor or disfavor of the day. Whether we ourselves and others, we, we may have good reason for our hard luck story. And the way that hard luck story easily and understandably turns into resentment, or self-pity, or um, anger. 
And we see the way that can easily kind of be used to reinforce to ourselves that kind of mean-spiritedness. Whether it's directed inwardly at oneself or whether it's directed outwardly at the the one who, who appears as the uh, perpetrator or offender or oppressor or whatever. And however justified the view might feel to us in the moment, still, we're still generating a kind of a painful mean-spiritedness. And so we might find that we start to actually notice the, the dysfunction of that. We start to really be interested in how one can make that offering to oneself, moment by moment. You might just think of the hard luck story just of being here at Gaia House. Where we might say, well, hold on, hold on. We're in a pretty privileged position here. There's not much hard luck story here, right? It was a bit damp this afternoon when I went for my walk. <laughs> But quite honestly, so supportive conditions, but has there been some kind of hard luck story in the last three days? The hard luck story generated by the self-pity or the comparison or the anxiety or whatever the the habit is. Vibka and I were speaking earlier today and I was talking about being on the road a lot the last few months. And during about five months, no, three months, I averaged two or three nights per place, per bed, right, over three months. And sometimes there's a week in a place teaching a retreat, and then there's one night, one night, one night, moving, and then somewhere else. And so over those three months, it was actually kind of blessed, a lot of blessing in it, and privilege. Mostly I'm traveling and teaching and uh, doing really what I love. But of course within that, a lot of jet lag, a lot of really not um, not being well slept, rested, a lot of kind of disturbance to the a kind of the rhythm that would be actually supportive. I often don't meditate as much as I like. I mean, it's easy when I'm teaching, right? You just hang out and sit with people. But in when, when you know, in between airports and the hotels and people's uh, uncomfortable guest rooms, and, and da, 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 it's often not easy. And just noticing how, you know, oh, what do I want to do with that? Do I want to generate a hard luck story? And just to see for ourselves the tendency to, we kind of the pull, the seduction of wanting to complain. Oh my God, we love to complain. I live in France. I mean, the French are the <laughs> top of the heap for complaining. We. Les râleurs. Qu'est-ce qu'on aime râler? That was for the benefit of the few French who are here. <laughs> and we actually, that's where we do have a choice. We don't have a choice about the hard luck story that we've inherited. We don't have a, cha- we don't have a choice about what has happened to us. And we may not have much choice about what is happening to us now. But we do have a choice in the spirit with which we meet it. We have a choice to wake up to the inertia 
of the familiar spirit, the mean spirit, self-pitying spirit, anxious spirit, fearful spirit, aggressive spirit, angry spirit, complaining spirit. And the, and the opportunity to bring a generous spirit to our experience, to our life, to each other, to our own experience. To kind of accompany oneself generously. And then inner life starts to feel like a, a kindly place to be. And whatever turns up here, much of which is kind of a lot of old rubbish. Right? Old rubbish turns up in mind. Oh, no problem. And can meet it with a generous spirit. Oh, there is that greedy thought, that needy thought, that lazy thought, that crazy thought. And the feeling of, is of a kind of be, be increasingly being a kindly companion to oneself, a generous companion to oneself. To one's experience, to the kind of the inner structures. Some of you have been talking these days about the Mara, the inner critic, the tendency we have to kind of berate ourselves, evaluate ourselves, judge ourselves, criticize ourselves. And when we start to really wake up to that structure, to the kind of pathological and pernicious and ongoing way in which the tendency to be harsh with ourselves, it can be really quite shocking. And we might find various skillful means to get some space from that. I'm realizing I could use this to, for some propaganda for the course that I run online each spring. It's like a month-long course of really just working with this structure. So I won't use that opportunity. If I, if I, I'll tell you about it on the last day. Um, but increasingly, what we, we find in that, what I would call being a kindly companion to oneself, we find, oh, that generous spirit extends even to the unhelpful parts of our mind. So the self-pitiful voice or the anxious voice or the complaining voice or the judgmental voice arises and we think, oh, there you are. And in that, in the recognition of and the kindly regard towards and making that gift, offering support, offering connection, offering recognition, that voice too, that inner structure Every unhelpful thought and mind state you've ever had arises for wanting exactly the same thing as the rest of us. Wants to be met. Wants to be acknowledged. Wants to be cared for. The moment you really acknowledge, oh, that's what's here in my mind, in that moment, it kind of loses its power. That's what's that beautiful exchange that's always there in the texts when Mara appears to the Buddha. And the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. Kindly companion. And, Mara, and in being seen, Mara appears in these different disguises, trying to kind of so it's like tempt the Buddha or persuade the Buddha to build big statues of himself or something. The Buddha says, hey, I see you, Mara. And then, it's always described in the same way in the text, then Mara's shoulders slump and he slinks away. 
fantastic description. That's what happens to an unhelpful mind state. Right? In the moment that it's really seen, oh, self-pity, you poor old soul. There you are. And the self-pity goes, oh. <laughs> its shoulders slump and it slinks away. And so, look at these different kind of realms or directions right, where we can cultivate generosity, the generosity towards others in our actions and our offerings. The letting ourselves actually receive the generosity of others when and where and however it's offered. And letting ourselves actually receive the generosity of life's support for our being. Right? The fact that you're here, here doesn't mean here at Guy House, him means here alive, is all the evidence you need that life is supporting you fantastically. Look, it works, right? it moves. <laughs> life is your ventriloquist. And then we find the different ways in which that feeling of generosity, the, a willingness to generosity, a kind of a brightness and warmth of spirit extends into various areas of our life. Actually, even extends to extend into death. And death in the Buddhist tradition is called King Yama. King Yama roams around this world. Yama just means death. King Yama roams around this world, deciding day by day who to lop off. And we don't know if today might be our day. And we don't know if tomorrow might be the day for a loved one. We do know that we're all headed unstoppably in that direction. And again, culturally, we, um, we're not very good at facing death. A lot of denial about death. A lot of hiding away of death. I spoke to someone just recently who had just discovered a dead body of a homeless person in the, in the park near where they lived just a day or two before the retreat. And the kind of shock. First time ever seeing a dead body. And I, maybe, there's, maybe there's others who have never seen a dead body. Maybe not a human body, maybe animal body. And the kind of rather the mystery of death. Well, like we say, life supporting us. Animated, warm, bright, conscious, here. And we don't know how long for. And at some point, just a lump of rotting meat. Mysterious. And yet we're encouraged, there's this practice in the tradition called Maranasati. It means mindful awareness of death. I have a friend in California who's just started to teach a, year, a retreat each year at Spirit Rock, a Maranasati retreat. And he says it's the best fun he's ever had. I'm going to teach it every year. So enlivening. So enlivening. Cult- to contemplate the mysteriousness of this aliveness, this support life is giving us so generously, and the fact that we just don't know how long it's going to last. When we turn our attention in that direction, we start to actually feel 
really, really okay about that. Generous towards it. Death has its job to do, like everyone else. Death too just wants to be seen, met, acknowledged, cared for. So pay attention to the, the habitual spirits that come to you. Pay attention just in the midst of your walking, or your eating, or your resting, or your wondering. Just to see what spirit am I bringing to my experience right now. And to see what might it mean to bring a generous spirit to this moment. To hold each other in a generous spirit. To look at life and each other and our families and loved ones and colleagues and the people that we meet with a generous spirit. To listen for and feel into the generosity that we are constantly the recipients of. know increasingly that generosity which is a foundation for happiness for a bright spacious warm kindly relationship with ourselves and with others and life may we all really discover the blessing of generosity may we commit our heart to the happiness of generosity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.